humanitarian agency and so we run international development programs in um, countries across the world. Over both of our, our organisations we're working in 42 different countries and uh, we have field workers, 190 field workers who are positioned across um, those countries as well as a network of strategic partners who are a mix of grassroots organisations, local churches in different countries um, that we work with and work through in order to achieve the mandate God's given us for ACC International. Um, so that's just a little bit of background on the personal side. Uh, um, as Neville said, I'm married. I have two little girls, um, Talia and Annika. So they're all down in Melbourne today with my husband having fun with no rain apparently, So which is unusual. I usually come from the rain, not um, come to the rain. Um, but they're... They are such a, a fun, two fun little girls who I love with all of my heart and, and they've really keep me on my toes, which is fantastic. But today, what I want to talk to you about is one of the core aspects of my work, uh, which is looking at child, so child protection or what we call care reform. And um, as Neville said, this is looking at the issue of shifting the way we as people in the Western world people in the, in the global south, wherever we might sit, both donors and practitioners, it's about shifting the way that when we work together that we provide care for children overseas who are vulnerable. And that vulnerability can come about due to many different types of, of issues and factors. A lot relates to poverty, migration, different things like that that create, create vulnerability in children's lives and in their families' lives. And there's this global shift taking place in the way that we respond to children in that situation. And that's what I'm going to start talking about uh, in this first session today. The reasons why that shift is taking place and what does it mean for us as part of the global church um, as we outwork that mandate that we very clearly have, which is to defend the rights of orphans and look after the fatherless and the widows, which we know is a very biblical mandate that we've been given. And so when I was in Cambodia, a lot of my work over 10 of those years that I was there was actually looking at developing what we call family-based care systems, which you'd be more familiar with in terms of foster care or kinship care uh, or care for children that takes place in the community versus um, in institutional settings. And we, we developed that system. It was the first um, registered foster care system in Cambodia that we developed for the government um, and with the government when all of those changes were, were not even on the radar at the time. And I want to share with you a little bit about the why, why we developed that system, why we felt like there was a really critical need to move away from the way children were being cared for in orphanages or residential care settings towards family and community-based settings. And give you a little bit of information about the research that has come out over a 60-year period that really informs us and allows us to see what environments are really conducive to children's development and what environments can unintentionally cause harm. So part of what we developed in Cambodia was looking at those family-based care systems, but also looking at community support systems. So we had, aside from the foster care and the kinship care system, we had emergency foster care. So a lot of times um, children would be intercepted from human trafficking rings and they would need somewhere to go immediately whilst we were tracing their families, locating what community they had come from and assessing whether or not their families were complicit in the Trafficking Act and whether or not they could be reunified. And so we developed an emergency care, foster care system to deal with children who immediately needed care for a short period of time. 
We also developed disability support programs in the community. We found that a lot of children were being placed in institutional care, not because they didn't have families, but because they had disabilities. And there was no disability support in the community. So we developed a program called ABLE, which provides physical therapy, occupational therapy, and, and um, disability support aids to families caring for children with disabilities, both biological families as well as foster carers caring for children with disabilities. So when I, after having done that for that period of time in Cambodia, I moved back to Australia and I realised that we'd gone on that journey reasonably independently of ACC International. And we came back and started looking at what was happening within our own projects um, that were being run by different people and, and our partners and so forth. And we realised that, that knowledge hadn't, we hadn't brought that knowledge back into the organisation. So it's at that point that we also started another program which we run today, which is called Connected. And Connected is a program that, that attempts to basically keep children in family settings. And we do that through engaging with organisations that are running residential care and helping them go through a transition process, which is called deinstitutionalisation. And that helps them transition to models that attempt to support children in their families and in their communities where possible and preserve those family units. We also do that through developing family-based care in countries where that system is yet to, to emerge. So developing foster care, developing extended kinship care networks um, and supporting those, those families in the community. We also engage in a lot of global advocacy. So I sit on, on a number of care reform um, the, the Global Care Reform Group, which is called Better Care Network. We sit on their steering committee around the issue of care reform globally, as well as a separate initiative that's attached to that, which is called Better Volunteering and Better Care. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in the, in the second session tonight as well, and how those two, those two issues really link. When we get to the Q&A section, if you've got more questions about Connected that I haven't answered in the course of this session, feel free to ask and I'll, I'll definitely be able to tell you a little bit more about that. But to date, Connected is now running in 10 countries across the world. And some of that is the transition work where it was institutional care that is now moving towards family-based care. And in other countries, we're able to develop family-based care from the outset. And so there's no actual transition taking place. So I want to start by, again, looking at the reasons why we are advocating for this change in the type of care that we're providing for children. So I want to start at looking at, talking about family. So if I forget to uh, press these slides, which I'm likely to do, just, just remind me. But I want to talk to you about families. So no matter what culture, no matter what society you're from or that you're working within, families are the most natural social unit in any culture, in any country. And although the child-rearing practices can differ across different cultures and across different countries, in every country and every culture, it most naturally takes place in a family, whether that's a nuclear family or an extended family setting. And we know as Christians that this is God's design. It's in the Bible. He designed the family unit as the most conducive place to raise children where their holistic needs could be met. But having said that, we know that Sin has affected families as it has affected any other type of, any other aspect of our life. Families can be broken. Families can be dysfunctional. Families can be in crisis. And as a result of that crisis, or as a result of that dysfunction, children can be found in crisis as well or unsafe. And there's lots of different things that creates that crisis. It can be divorce. It can be the death of a parent. It can be illness poverty, substance abuse, um, a lack of positive freedoms, which basically means a lack of ability to make positive choices and direct the course of your own future. It can be abuse and neglect, 
domestic violence, it can be a lack of infrastructure in the community, a lack of access to resources or education, it can be discrimination, marginalisation, inequality, dysfunction, conflict and war. Any of those types of things, and I'm sure we could extend that list, can wreak havoc on families and put children in a difficult situation. And as Christians, we have a clear biblical mandate to respond and help children who are found in that situation. But just as much as we have a responsibility to respond, we have a responsibility to assess what is the best way to respond to children in crisis that takes into account their holistic needs, both for their childhood, in their immediate childhood, but also what will best position them to be functional in their adulthood. In Isaiah 1.17, it says, Learn to do what is right, seek justice, correct the oppressor, Defend the rights of the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. And we can, what I can love about this verse is not only does it tell us that we should be reaching out to and providing support to orphan children or fatherless children and widows, it also gives us a really big clue about the how, what type of support should we be providing. It specifically says there to defend the rights of the fatherless. And sometimes one of the things that we, we don't take into account when we're working with children overseas who are vulnerable is that one of their primary rights is their right to grow up in their family. And that right to a family is enshrined in the Bible. It's recognised in the Bible. But it's also recognised by international child rights law. Some of you may have heard of the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child. And that is the primary instrument that has become international law because it has been ratified by the threshold number of countries to make it so. It is the most widely ratified convention in our history. And it, in the very preamble of that instrument, it says that, convinced that the family, as the fundamental group of society, and the natural environment for the growth and well-being of all its members, and particularly children, should be afforded the necessary protection and assistance so that it can fully assume its responsibilities within the community. I love that in international child rights law, the Bible's model of how children should be cared for is essentially recognised and enshrined in the very beginning of that instrument. There are a number of other articles, articles 5, 7 and 8, that also speak specifically about the child's right to live with their family. But despite each child having a clear right to live with their family and grow up in a family, the UN also estimates that today across the world there are approximately 8 million children who are living in residential care, who are separated from their families. Now, residential care is a broad term. It includes care environments such as orphanages, children's centres, children's villages, children's homes and some types of foster care. So in some, in some settings you'll find foster care is basically what we call compound foster care where there might be smaller group homes where children are placed in around seven, seven children per home but it's in a compound setting. So those houses are not integrated in the community and if that's the case then that type of care setting is also classified as residential care. Now, residential care, whether it's whatever type of, of care it is under those different banners, has been the primary response of Western-funded or Western-founded organisations to children in crisis across the world, in the developing world. Yet there is an extensive body of global evidence and research that has emerged over a 60-year over a period that really clearly demonstrates 
that the long-term use of any form of residential care can have detrimental impacts on children's development and well-being, and that can affect their outcomes well into their adulthood. Now, whilst there is a place for residential care in some circumstances, and even international child rights and child law recognises residential care as a part of what we call the continuum of care, it should never be the first option. Because removing a child from their family is a very extreme intervention and it can have very well-known negative effects on a child. Therefore, it's not something that we should be using lightly and it should never be our first response when we find a child or a family in crisis. In the United Nations guidelines on the alternative care of children, and alternative care means any type of care that happens outside of their biological family, it says in those guidelines, in the implementation guidelines, that residential care holds the place of last resort and temporary care. That means when all other family and community-based care options for that child have been assessed and deemed as not in that child's best interest, it is at that point that a residential care placement is deemed legitimate and in the child's best interest. But even when that determination has been made, it should be temporary. And this is because of the very well-recognised impacts that residential care can have on a child. So whilst it is a legitimate part of the continuum, it should never be something that we intend for children to grow up in for their whole childhood. It should be a temporary placement until the issues that are preventing that child from growing up in a family, whether that's their own family or a substitute family, can be addressed so that that child can be reintegrated back into the community. The reasons why there is such a strong, there's such strong guidance around residential care only being used as last resort and temporary care is because there are very well known effects that it can cause on a child's development, both their physical development, their psychosocial development, their emotional development, and also their cognitive development. I'm going to go through some of the main ones with you today. So one of the first ones is what we call attachment disorder, and this comes out of attachment theory. An attachment is basically a child's formation of a significant and a stable emotional connection with a significant person or persons in their life. And that process of a child forming an attachment begins in very early infancy and with, with their primary carer. So it's usually mother and father or in some cultures where care is provided by a broader group of extended family members, it might be three or four different people. Attachment is incredibly important, particularly for infants and babies, as without an attachment, a primary attachment with a caregiver, that child can't adequately engage with the stimulus around them in order for their brains to develop. So when a child doesn't have that attachment, doesn't matter how much stimulation you put around that child, they're unable to effectively engage with it, and the soft pathways that are developing in their brain that need to be solidified at around about the age of five don't develop. And so once they hit that five-year-old threshold, that's permanent brain wiring that is different from a child who grows up in a family. Now, you couple that with the fact that if you look at the way care is provided in many institutions around the world, often those environments lack stimulation. They lack things for children to engage in. 
And so you couple that with the lack of attachment and you've got a scenario where children don't develop cognitively. And again, once you hit that sort of five-year-old age range, that's permanent. That's not something that can be changed. And so generally, as a result of that, um, most countries in their alternative care policies recognise that children under three should never be placed in residential care because it's actually quite a short window of time that it takes for that brain development to start to, to be negatively impacted. Um, and for small children, development regresses when they're placed in large institutional settings. So it's incredibly important for young children that they are cared for in family environments. For older children, attachments also have, um, have, have ramifications as well. So because they're, they're separated from their families, because they don't have that um, primary attachment with their caregivers, often you'll see that these, kind of these children, when they're a little bit older, will, will show uh, low self-esteem, a lack of self-worth. They will often have a very pessimistic view of themselves, a pessimistic view of, of society, a pessimistic view of families. They often find it difficult to develop and maintain healthy relationships with other people. They find it difficult to trust because trust is formed within the context of that primary relationship with a caregiver. They can often present as very clingy, very needy. Often they will be inappropriately affectionate um, with people. If anybody has ever been to visit um, an orphanage or a children's home where children are, are presenting that, often they will run to you, they will hang off you, they will hug you very quickly. And if you compare that to the behaviour of your own child, your own children, you'll find it to be quite unnatural, quite unusual. Sometimes we interpret that as the kids are happy. They like their environment, they're well adjusted, they're happy. That's actually a very classic symptom of an attachment disorder, that children are indiscriminate with their infection. Now you can imagine if a child grows up with an attachment disorder presenting that lack of discrimination around how they relate to physically another person, when they leave care at 18, 19, they don't have a social network as a family to protect them and they are presenting that in the community, you can imagine how these children get preyed upon. And that is why we see such high rates of care leavers who end up being trafficked, who end up being involved in criminal cartels because they're looking to belong. They're vulnerable. They will attach very quickly and unnaturally to whoever shows them attention. And that leaves them hyper-vulnerable to being exploited or abused when they leave care. As we said before, attachment can also have permanent effect, uh, can have result in permanent da damage to a child's brain development. Um, and result in behavioural and academic problems. In the big institutions, like the ones we often see in, in the Eastern Europe block, um, children will present with quasi-autistic behaviours. And that's a symptom, again, of that brain development and that attachment disorder. I, my husband and I have fostered children in Cambodia over the period of time that we were there. And uh, three of those children we fostered for, for quite a long period of time, for just under the 10-year mark. And... Um, one of our children that we first fostered was just like that. She would sit, in when, I, when we went to the orphanage where she was, when we were arranging the, the placement with the government, she was rocking. When she gets stressed, she'd bang her head on walls, she would bite. All of these behaviours that are very classic autistic behaviours, yet she was not autistic. It was a symptom of institutionalisation and the, the effects on her development um, from being in the orphanage from a baby. And that brings us to the next um, issue Okay, we're not moving forward. Can we, sorry, it's not working for me. Oh, okay, there we go, sorry about that. So the next one here is the effects of institutionalisation. 
So institutional behaviour basically means a deficit in social and life skills. And institutionalisation develops in people who live apart from normal society and who are deprived of responsibility, deprived of independence and deprived of opportunities to make decisions for themselves. So when children grow up in, in residential care settings, and obviously the more kind of large institutional they are, the more this becomes prevalent, then those children are not involved in the normal situations in which you develop life skills. So much of what you learn in order to function in society, you just absorb within a family. You absorb it by watching your parents. You absorb it by going to the supermarket or the market with your mum. You learn about currency. You learn about bargaining. You learn so many different skills just being in the social context of a family. But children who grow up in care are not exposed to those situations, so they don't develop those social and life skills. Also, when you're managing a large number of children in, an, in a residential care centre, it's very natural to implement strict routines. And you will often find in residential care the, the children's schedule printed up and posted up onto the wall. At 5 o'clock they get up, at 5.10 they, they clean their teeth, then they pray and then they have a bath and then they have breakfast and then they go to school and then they come home and then they do their homework and then they do this and then they go, go to bed. A child that spends their childhood cycling through those schedules never has to make a decision. They never have to develop those decision-making skills and what we see in care leavers is when they exit care they don't know how to make a decision. They don't know what to do. And I'll show you a video very shortly of a, a girl that lived with me the first year I was in Cambodia that came out of an orphanage and she was my introduction to all of this because when, I, when she first came to stay, I found out after about a month that she would go for up to a week at a time without eating when I wasn't there, if I'd gone to the province or if I'd gone to a different country for work and I was away for a week or two, she often just wouldn't eat because she didn't know how to make a decision. She couldn't decide what to do about it. She had spent her life walking through a routine at somebody else's instruction and she just literally did not have the skills to decide, okay, I've got $10, what should I cook today? Go to the market, decide what to buy and come back and cook it. She just, that would make her freeze. And so she would sit in her room and not eat until somebody discovered that she wasn't eating and would, would give her some food. And it wasn't because she wasn't intelligent she just had been institutionalised and hadn't developed those really key skills. So again, sometimes you don't see that when the kids are in care. It's not until they leave care that you start to understand some of the effects um, of that type of care environment on the children. So again, it's generally accepted that as a result of all of this, that children under three should not be placed in institutions. Children are often put in care for their protection. But what the statistics and the research show, and again, this is incredibly well-evidenced research. It's not one research piece that's been done in one country. This is a massive body of research that has accumulated over a very long period of time across all of the developing world, um, including the Soviet bloc. And what we're seeing through all of that is that abuse rates are incredibly high in institutional care or residential care settings. And it's important to note that it's not always at the hand of adults. A lot of the time it's children abusing children. Because you can imagine an environment where you've got children who are not related to each other. Often they've been abused themselves. Often that's why they've been brought there. And that abuse is not being dealt with. And you're putting them in an environment where there may or may not be enough supervision. Um, and they're mixed in with children of different ages and different genders. And a lot of the time these children will then abuse each other. Orphanages are often also positioned away from communities. 
it's really common that you'll have a, a town or a city and the orphanages are always on the outskirts uh, or they're positioned away where land is a little bit cheaper so they were able to get a bigger place. And so what that does is it means that nobody's watching. So many times these orphanages are not on anybody's radar. In a lot of countries, particularly the countries where care is privatised, where it's, it's funded by organisations and private donations from individuals and it's not funded by the government, in most of those countries we're seeing that up to half of institutions are not registered with the government. They're not lawfully operating. So they're effectively not on anybody's radar. Nobody's monitoring them, nobody's visiting them, nobody's enforcing minimum standards, nobody's looking into any claims. There's no one that even knows that these children are in care half of the time. And that environment is very conducive towards abuse because nobody is looking. There is no accountability. Now, oftentimes we think, well, surely this is not happening in Christian homes, but it is. We, in the course of my work, I have assessed probably close to 100 orphanages, the majority of them being faith-based, and we're finding very few that don't have abuse happening within them. And most of the times in the faith-based homes, it's not the director's who are abusing the children. In a few instances it has been, but in most cases it's either staff or volunteers or children abusing children or they have such lax child protection um, mechanisms in place that people are coming in off the streets and abusing the children. And most of the time the directors have been completely unaware that this has been taking place until the assessments with the children have started to reveal it. Oh, we've brought in trained social workers and child psychologists who are able to observe those behaviours in the children and then through counselling and assessment those allegations have been revealed. It is incredibly rampant throughout both faith-based and, and secular um, institutional care. Many kids in, or in orphanages, they don't understand their rights. They don't understand. They've never been told what they should and shouldn't be able to expect from staff or caregivers. So sometimes when things are happening, there's no mechanism for them to report. If no one's visiting, if they don't have neighbours around them, if they've never been told here's how to, what you can do if somebody does the wrong thing to you, then many of the times the children don't, don't make the allegations of abuse until social workers come in and give them that opportunity. And as I said before, it's not just in their childhood that institutional care has an impact on children. It's a huge issue when they prepare to leave care. Again, because they're disconnected from those social connections. And, and in our society, we're a highly um, nuclear family, individualistic sort of society. But in most developing countries, these are collectivist cultures, which means that you're embedded in these social networks that provide pretty much all of your informal social support and a lot of your social safety nets is delivered through your extended family and your community relationships. So for a child who grows up in a culture like that to be disconnected from those networks is a really, really big disadvantage because in most of those countries you get employment, you are, are, you are married to somebody via those networks. So if you enter society without those networks, you have nobody to negotiate employment for you, you're going to find it very difficult to find a job. If you have nobody to negotiate a marriage for you, you're going to find it very, very difficult for somebody else's parents to agree to let them marry your child. All of these things get provided through those extended networks and a child who has grown up in care has been disconnected from those networks. There is often a lot of stigma and, and social isolation involved in being a care liver. In many countries it is considered a, stigma, a stigmatised issue and this is exacerbated by the behaviour of care leavers. So as we said before, many of these children are institutionalised. When they leave care they don't understand what 
that what appropriate behaviour is back in the community. Many of these children say to us that they only ever related to children or staff. They never understood the full hierarchy of relationships that they're going to face in the community. So they will go out in the community and they will speak in a way that is perceived as being rude or inappropriate um, or disrespectful to adults because they've not been modelled that. And they, when they get married, they often have a lot of difficulties in their marriages because, again, they've not grown up in a family environment where that marriage, where that relationship between a husband and a wife has been modelled to them. So they don't know how to interact and they can often be perceived as being inappropriate or rude or disrespectful. Um, often that follows on to when they have children. The, the care leaver that you'll see a video on for soon, ooh, her name was, when she had her first baby... It took a year for her to know how to just relate to this baby. She looked at it when it was born like it was an alien. She admitted, I don't, I don't know what to do with it. I've never seen anybody mother a child. I don't know what to do with this child. She didn't have those natural instincts of how to care for her child because she'd not had that model to her. She'd grown up in an institution from a very young age. So if institutional care or residential care settings can in, in many cases create such an extensive list of detrimental impacts. Why are children there in the first place? Many of us assume that they're there because they don't have any other options, because they need to be there. But the truth is that that is really rarely the case. One of the greatest myths around residential care is that children who live in orphanages or other forms of residential care are orphans or abandoned children or children who have no adequate parental care. But what the research is consistently showing us is that the global statistics are that 80% of children who are growing up today in residential care have parents. And of the 20% that don't have parents, there are very few children who don't have families, who don't have extended families, grandparents, aunts, uncles, sometimes older siblings. Most of us have been led to believe that they're orphans because of the word orphanage. It perpetuates that understanding, but that's not actually what's really happening. Most common reason why children are in residential care is due to poverty. Most parents place their children in care because they can't provide for them in the community what they can access through a residential care centre. But the problem with that is that accessing those services through residential care is conditional upon relinquishing your child. In Cambodia, the one of the government officials who heads up the alternative care um, policy and policy implementation in the Ministry of Social Services, he said to me once when we were having a meeting, he said... We don't have orphanages in our country because we have orphans. We have orphans in this country because we have orphanages. And what he was articulating is that when an orphanage is in a poor community, it is like a pull factor. It incentivizes family separation. Because if there are no other options being given to these parents and they have to choose between abject poverty or relinquishing their child so that they think their child can get a better future, get an education, get proper health care, then out of love for their child, they are choosing to place their children in care. But the reality is that the cost of providing care to a high standard for a child in an orphanage is between six and ten times more than what it costs to enable that child to access the same services if they were living in the community. So it points to a desperate need to redirect the resources and the way that we're enabling children to access these services away from putting them in institutions towards community services and family services. 
There is also a lot of recruiting happening in poverty-stricken contexts. And sometimes it's out of good intention. Sometimes it's staff and orphanage directors who genuinely believe that the issues in the community are too big to solve. So the best thing that they can do is go and offer families living in poverty the chance to send their children um, to an orphanage. But this is called active recruiting. In the worst cases, and this is common in countries like Nepal and Cambodia, Uganda are probably three of the, the biggest um, challenging areas when it comes to this, is that unscrupulous orphanage directors who are primarily setting up these orphanages to elicit support from overseas, to elicit child sponsorship and donations, are actually um, falsifying children's records and creating what we call paper orphans. Um, bringing children who have parents into institutions, changing their documentation to show them as orphans and then getting them into institutions so that they can then elicit the financial support to care for them in that setting. And so this is creating and fueling an industry around children in which children become a commodity. And most of it, again, is driven by poverty. Oh. I'll show you that one in a second. So poverty and access to education and um, disability are probably the three main reasons why children are placed into institutional care. Now this is the video that I've been talking about is of a young woman named Oo and again she lived with me straight out of an orphanage. She came when she was around about 17. She wasn't coping there anymore. She wanted to leave. The orphanage director realised that if she had gone and lived in the community by herself she wouldn't cope. So I was brand new to the country. I'd literally been there for like a month and a half and, and they rang me and said would she, um, would she be able to come and live with you? You're a young single girl. We thought this would be a really great setup, and I didn't know that it was going to be a big drama. I thought, yeah, sure, why not? That sounds fine. She's 17. I'm thinking, West, you know, a 17-year-old in Australia can look after themselves. It'll like, be like having a roommate. Oh my goodness, it was nothing like having a roommate. Over the next few years, she has eight siblings. I watched every single one of them come out of care and end up in all sorts of situations. And it was basically a case study of the statistics. One gets trafficked, one ends up in a drug cartel and then ends up in jail. One ends up slipped a date rape drug and then pregnant at the age of 15. One was abused in the orphanage sexually and so went on to sexually abuse a child in the community and then was caught by the police. It was just a statistical lineup of why children don't function in institutional care. And it was the reason why I got into this sector of care reform because it was just so obvious watching her life and watching her siblings' life that this was not working. And that was at the time when the very first generation of care leavers left institutional care in Cambodia because the country was closed to Westerners and closed to outside organisations up until the very beginning of the 90s. And when it opened, some of the first organisations that came in started orphanages and and to be fair that was one of the only things governments would allow them to do teach English or start an orphanage so that was a lot of what they did and so it was at this point in the beginning of, the, of 2000 that the first generation of care leavers began to leave and we began to see very clearly the effects of care on this generation of young people so have a look at this video
ហើយនៅពេលដែលនៅពេលដែលនៅពេលដែលនៅពេលដែលនៅពេលដែលនៅពេលដែលនៅពេលដែលនៅពេលដែលនៅពេលដែលនៅពេលដែលនៅពេល
ở chiếm xe nó cứ phải khai cái thay dương đâu mà để anh chia sẻ mình là hay chia sẻ để nó ngay bị cua xa bị chán sẻ để nó mà anh cứ bị bạ mình tên bị bạ sầm rập cái mưa này chết khang bạ ô cô nên nó mà bay bay qua rồi si ai gặp thưa ai chẳng bị bạ mẹ rầm chẳng đài tầm quan trọng tại chiếc nó phải là nhom miền cua xa hay nhom tận nơi mà đại khang mấy đại mấy nhom bạ chán bị được biết lẽ cái nào khổ ແລະກະນະເຈບແຊກາຖືມະໂຮໄພການຍິດໃດໂດຍພິຈັນຍິດໃດໂດຍກົນຄເມງໂດຍຄເມງໂດຍໂດຍຢູ່ໄວໂດ
nhôm sọc đai đai và sân miên cua sa vô nhôm tơ pha nhôm sơn bạch chết nấu cua sa đai mình đối mình chỉ là cõi thua nhôm đai chết sờ bài riêng ấy bàn tay nó về để nhôm chén máu cứ nhôm mặt đang bị lạc nát sừng côm hay nhôm tơ thua ấy chỉ mui sừng côm nhôm tơ thua ấy chỉ mui mình hút xe tai nhôm tơ luôn nấu dạng mai nhôm tơ cột rụp kê dạng mai ấy dạng mai nhôm mặt đằng chân và sân nhôm nấu mui cua sa thay mình mặt bài nhôm prap thao côn thuyền che lo thuyền che hay nông cạo thay nên miền bò miền ai cả lang hay côn mao biển miền côn miền ai kia ao dương mơ thay nhom nhom trăng bàn trăng nhom mặt trăng bàn nhom nông mình đôi tàu riêng mao biển nhám nhám hai tàu về đây nhom tranh tìm đôi là với với cứ nhom mọi miền thằng họ cất tha với đại loa tháp bị bạc cất cứ trầm trâu bị pro quạt cất thang chăng nhôm miệng bảo vệ sao toa khuôn tha và sân bà nẹ chùm núi ai ao ai chui đó comment chẳng lại na đại miền bảy ha hay ao sạn đâu không te đại miền pro xa nhưng cất thang miền phía cọ cái ao chiêng hay cá chết đằng bọc quạt cứ mà mình chết đằng này cá riêng sâu đấy cứ chết đằng bị lạc nạ sòng côm một không pro xa tạm đòn không lạc nạ sầm bát sầm đạ sòng côm một không pro xa cứ sầm khăn bằng phật và sân bằng nhôm chụp sàn đập hiệp nấu bê lại nhôm ót hơi nhôm xông ao nè đại kê trăng chuối nhôm bài chỉ nhôm xông ao kê chuối nhôm nấu chỉ mùi cua sa đại miền hiệp cọ đào nấu chật chụp sàn nấu chật mặt đài phục nhôm đại đại quạt ót sâu miền sầm đập hiệp vậy trong mới quạt miền nhôm miền phục mặt đài bàn tay một bài nhôm miền sầm đập hiệp bài nhôm tơ sả riêng là ót nhôm miền hộp cục cọn nhôm thay nhôm xông ao quạt chuối nhôm nhôm nấu chỉ mùi phục mặt đài chiêng powerful isn't it and you hear it from a care leaver herself and what's important to understand is often we can get into this conversation and it becomes a good orphanage versus bad orphanage debate but the orphanage that U grew up in was rated as the number one orphanage in the country for a good 10 years she didn't grow up in a bad orphanage it's just that the, t the, the nature of residential care is such that it can't be a good replacement for families. And as she said, it can provide for a children's educational needs and physical needs, but it cannot replace the family and the what the family does for a child's development in terms of their social development, their emotional development, and their understanding of how to function in a community. And again, this is all happening because of poverty. Ooh's story, it was because her family was poor. But poverty should never be the reason why we remove a child from a family because poverty does not make somebody an unfit parent. It makes them someone who needs help, someone who needs support. And so when we are directing that support, it is a better idea that we direct it to the whole family, not just direct it towards the child. And that's often what's happening in these situations is that we're just looking at the child. We're taking the child out of context and we're just responding to this child as if he or she is an individual. But a child is not the only person affected by poverty. A whole family is. Often a whole community is. And a child does not exist in a crisis by themselves. They exist in a context. And that context is their family, who is also usually in crisis. And so we need to stand back and not isolate the child from this picture and respond to an individual child, but respond to the whole family in which this child is a part of. 
And our resources can go so much further when they're directed towards solving these root cause issues in the community and in families than when we use them to remove children from their families and raise them in residential care settings. I want to show you an example of how that can take place, of how we can use the resources that we have to direct them towards preserving a vulnerable family. And this next video I want to show you is, is a, a story of a woman called Sita, and she is someone that came into contact with our program in Cambodia, our um, family-based and community-based care program. And hers is another really quite classic story of how children end up on that trajectory of going into residential care, but how we were able to intervene in that story and through very, very simple initiatives and very low cost initiatives actually preserve that fa family unit. My family's problem started when my husband was diagnosed with AIDS. We sold everything to pay for treatment, but he passed away. My relatives wanted me to take my children to an orphanage. So I took them. But it ripped my heart out to leave them. When I took them to the orphanage in Phnom Penh, the organization gave me $30 and a bag of rice and I gave them my children. When I handed my baby over, I was standing there crying. They took them inside but came back out again shortly. The director said to me, take your children for the night and bring them back tomorrow. I need to find a carer for them. I took them with me and never went back to the orphanage. Sita returned back to her community with her children. She knew that she couldn't bring herself to give them up, but she returned without a solution to the poverty cycle she was locked in. Children in Families, a non-profit organisation in Cambodia, heard of her case. They immediately began to assist Sita so her family could stay together. By simply assisting with the cost of education, ensuring she had enough food for her family and helping her generate income through pig farming, Sita's family did not have to go through the heartbreaking experience of being separated simply due to poverty. Sita has now been able to receive antiretroviral medication. Her children are able to go to school and they have been provided with a well so they have access to clean, safe drinking water. Simple initiatives like these are often all it takes to keep children in families where they belong. I feel so happy and contented that I can be with my children. Because of the help of children in families, I am so joyful and not so stressed like before. Life is better now, so much better. It costs approximately $25 a month to help Sita keep her three children at home. That was it. And an initial investment of $150 to dig that well. That was it. It's all it took to keep that family together and to prevent those kids from growing up in residential care when they had a mum who, as you can see, loves them and wants the best for them. 
And whilst this is the case for the overwhelming majority of children who are growing up in residential care around the world, there are some families that are not suitable for children. There are cases of abuse. There are cases where families or parents are complicit in the Trafficking Act. There are situations where children shouldn't be staying with their families due to different reasons. But even those children still deserve to grow up in a family. And there are other options for those children. And residential care still shouldn't be the first option for them. And this is what we call the continuum of care, which is probably a little bit difficult for you to see. But it basically is, again, it's one of the aspects of the United Nations Alternative Care Guidelines. And it prioritises family-based care above institutional care. So before we get to the point of placing a child in an orphanage or another type of residential care setting, we should first be looking for kinship care options. If that's not suitable or not in the child's best interest or not available, then we move on to foster care. And if that's not suitable for that particular child, then there are some other, in some countries you've got options at um, pagoda or faith-based care settings, particularly in countries like Indonesia. Otherwise, you start looking at the smallest, highest quality uh, care in group homes. So group homes differ from residential care in that they're normal houses in the community. They're staffed, but the children do all the normal things in the community. They go to a community school, they still integrate into community life, and so they're not segregated. So it reduces the risk of institutionalisation on those children. It's only if all of those things are not suitable for that given child for whatever reason has been assessed by a competent social worker, it is at that point that we would look at a residential care placement. And even then, we're looking for the smallest family, most family-like placement before you would ever get to the position of placing a child in a larger institution. And that's called the continuum of care. And again, residential care, as you can see, sits right at the end of that continuum. And once you hit that place, a child's case should be reviewed minimum annually to prevent that child from spending more time than is necessary in that care environment. So to get to the point where the 8 million children in the world today, and there's actually going to be some more research released at the end of this year, there's been a number of mapping exercises taking place globally, and we're expecting those, those, the new data to come out at the end of the year. And a lot of the um, researchers are, are, are believing or estimating that the figure's actually going to be higher than 8 million children. How do we get from the point of having 8 million children in residential care to actually changing this system of care so all of those children, for the ones who, for whom it's appropriate, can actually achieve their right to grow up in a family? And that is this process of transition that we started talking about, or deinstitutionalisation. And that is where we need to do multiple things. We need to shift the way kids are cared for. We need to be developing those family preservation and community services. We need to be developing those family-based care, foster care and kinship care, that children can access when they can't legitimately stay with their own parents or families. We need to be just developing infrastructure in communities, like schools and things like that, so that kids can access that without having to be sent away. But one of the most challenging things about this process of transition is actually about redirecting the funding. It is one of the strongholds, is that because residential care is often so highly supported by outside donors, unless the donor communities begin to exert a pressure on the way children are cared for, it is very difficult to change the care environments in some of these countries. Countries like Cambodia, where the government has 23 out of 670 institutions. 23 are the governments. The rest are all privately funded. About 70% of those are run by Christian organisations. 60, just over the 60% mark are not 
are not registered and not operating lawfully. And the government has had a policy in place to try to crack down on this since 2006, yet we're still struggling in 2016 because there is still so much support coming from donors. And so this is both good news and a challenge. The challenge is this is where the message needs to be heard in countries like Australia that are very keen supporters of residential care still to help people in, in Australia and other Western countries understand what is in children's best interests. Who are these children? Why are they there? Are they really orphaned? Are there other options so that we can begin to give in a different way, support children in a different way and shift that resource over to community-based services? That is such a, a stronghold. Often we talk to orphanage directors and we're working with them in that process of encouraging them to change. And so many of them come back to me and say, I believe you, I agree with you, I've seen it in the children I'm caring for, all the things that you're talking about, but my donors won't agree. And if I don't do what they want me to do, they will stop funding me tomorrow. And how will I even have the money to work through this process of transition? And so they make a decision based upon the power that's being exerted from their outside donors. And this is why, this is the exciting part of that, is that we actually have a lot that we can do about this care reform agenda from countries like Australia as we share this message with our friends and with our families and within our churches and within our organisations, within our sphere of influence, we can actually change the way children in countries across the oceans that we may never meet are going to be cared for. We can change the way the next generation of children are going to be supported. We can prevent the unnecessary and needless institutionalisation of children. And this is something that I'm incredibly passionate about. And this is something that ACCI is driving forward um, within Australia, both within the faith-based community, but we've also started a, an interagency and cross-sector working group in Australia where we have members of the tourism industry, we have members of the university sector, um, the government is, on, is a part of this initiative. And we're looking at all the sectors that are involved in the ongoing support of residential care to encourage a much broader shift of opinion in Australia so that to Together we can all start to change the way care is provided for for children overseas. So it's exciting because there's something we can do about this. This is not just something we can learn about and say, oh wow, that's really difficult and challenging. It's, it's sad. We can change this. And so I just want to encourage you as one of the results from today is, is, is to think about just sharing this message with the people that you know. Um, there's lots of information out there. There's lots of social media articles out there that you can share on with your networks. There's lots you can do just to get this message out there. And as churches and as Christians, if we can just prioritise the way we support children. We're not saying don't support children. We know that that's a biblical mandate. But we also know that the Bible, like we said at the start, says to defend their rights. We have a responsibility to look at how we care, not just if we care or not. And so let's make that shift. Let's lead that shift to see children growing up in families. Amen? Let's have a break. And then when we come back, we're going to have a look at the issue of short-term teams or volunteering. And it'll continue on a little bit from this session because the first stronghold, as we just mentioned then, is the funding. But the second stronghold for changing the way children are care being cared for is the volunteering. So we're going to get into that piece after a five-minute break. Do you want to...